All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. We're excited to have you today, and uh, we hope that uh, you have a blessed day. We thank you that you're here. I know this is kind of tempting to stay home, right, under the covers, next to the fire. Some good coffee, right, Mr. Phil? <clears throat> so, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Shemansky kind of let me know what uh, Mr. Phil did this morning. He woke up and started the fire, had some coffee ready. What a good man, so... <laughs> no fire? No. Anyways, let's go ahead and get started. Um, do you want to go over the, this later today at the end? Okay, so don't forget to look on top. We have our announcements, and then Owen will, will go over them again at the end of our service. So, All right, let's uh, go ahead and open our Bibles to Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19. 1927. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And God's Word says, Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive one hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today, Lord. I pray that our worship today, Lord, is uh, pleasing to you. We just thank you for all the men and women and the children who are here today, Lord, to worship together. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your church, and that's why we are here today, Lord. You said that you will build your church, and we are part of it, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We love you for all that you've done for us, specifically, Lord, for the, for the uh, grace and mercy you've shown us through the cross, Lord. Lord, I pray today that you are honored. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, turn with me to the book of Mark. If you have your <clears throat> physical Bibles with you or you use a phone app, just uh, make your way there. And I will be starting in verse 21 of chapter 1, and we will confine the teaching this morning from verses 21 through 28. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. So this is the word for everyone, whether you are young or, what is it, advanced in years? Was that what we heard in the reading today? So, <clears throat> It's the word, you can't deny it. Okay, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. <clears throat> Let's go to the prayer, Lord in prayer once more. <clears throat> and Jay, would you open us up, please? Amen. Thank you. So our passage this morning follows the calling of the four disciples that we looked at last week. But we should understand, and having a little bit of background about Mark, and that he makes some leaps over the information that the other Gospels cover, we find somewhat of a gap here in Mark. I don't know the span in terms of months or maybe even a year, but by this time... Jesus is entered into Capernaum and into the synagogue here. Um, he had already called all of his other apostles. So the 12 are with him continually at this time. Probably all 12 are with him here in this synagogue scene that we encounter today. Uh, by this time also, the Sermon on the Mount had already been preached. And the healing of the leper that is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 2, 3, 4, these things have already occurred leading up to this point. Jesus enters into this city called Capernaum. He went to the place that the people were worshiping. The Jewish place of worship was the synagogue. And if we look at the writings of some of the historians, now let me just insert a word of caution here. Um, we try and remind you to be Bereans at all times, that you confirm that the things that I'm saying, the things that other, uh, I, I would not call myself a scholar, but other biblical scholars that I might reference, <laughs> or the theologians, um, commentary, check those against the scripture. So I'm going to be kind of going from historians' perspective on this, what they write of uh, the synagogue worship at this time. Okay, so some of the historians of this time period... <clears throat> says that there was no set teachers in the synagogues. So they didn't have pastors that would you know, preach the messages continually so you would only be hearing from, from two or three, but rather they would invite educated guests and they would speak on the scripture reading or the Torah reading for that day. Now, this provided Jesus with an opportunity to teach. This is why Jesus was having the platform to teach because of their method for bringing in known teachers of the time and having them expound on what was read. And the synagogues, you may remember that Paul followed this pattern, it seems, that Jesus had already established. Paul, as he entered into a city on his missionary journeys, he would enter into the synagogues first, and it says there he would reason with them from the Scriptures. So it seems that Paul took his cue from what our Lord demonstrates here in going into a city, going to the synagogue, going to the Jews first, and presenting them with his word, with the word of truth. And the reaction to this was one of astonishment. The scripture tells us in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This word astonished, which might in your translation appear as amazed or maybe even overcome by their hearing of this, this word of authority, is a Greek word and it's ekpleso. Ekpleso, it's two words combined. It's Greek often does the word ek, it means out, and the word pleso means strike. 
So it is, in a sense, to strike out. And one definition says it is to strike out of one's senses. That is that almost a good description of that is our word of astonished. Figuratively, it's filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. And it leaves the subject unable to grasp what is happening. We'll see later on here where they're questioning these things that they're hearing. They're turning these things over in their minds because they can't believe what they're hearing. They can't believe what they're seeing. They are amazed. They are astonished. Commentator Voost on this word amazed says, this is the verb in a pictorial imperfect tense describing the prolonged amazement of the audience. It is the passive voice showing that this amazement was caused by an outside influence. The tremendous impact that the Messiah made upon them by this new type of teacher and teaching that met their eyes and ears. Scripture tells us he taught with authority. And this contrast with how they had previously been taught. And who was it that was teaching him? Well, the Scripture tells us it was the scribes that were teaching. And Jesus' words were authoritative which, and they were astonished by this, which means what they were hearing from the scribes was not authoritative. They were not speaking from a true authority, the, the authority in, in the sense of God speaking to man. <clears throat> so we can surmise that the scribes were not teaching with God-ordained authority. So it was likely that they really were not quoting the Scriptures and using Scripture to support Scripture. Of course, in Old Testament times, all they had, they, the Torah was being read in the synagogues, and then you would expect them to be expounding upon the Torah and maybe using other places in the Torah if they were teaching in expository fashion to then uphold and affirm the Scripture that they were reading, which is what we strive to do here as a New Testament church. But... What most commentators uh, would say about their teaching is that they likely did not quote other scriptures, but rather they quoted the famous rabbis of that time. It was a source of pride, in a sense, to be able to memorize the things that the teachers of that time period were teaching. So if it was a great rabbi and they were able to quote them word for word, they were seen as someone who had a so-called authority. And that was the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. It was a man-made authority. And that's why Scripture tells us that Jesus was speaking with authority, all caps, but these men, these scribes, were teaching with a so-called authority. It was looking to other commentary, if you will, and using that as the sole source of their teaching. Jesus would later declare of them in Mark chapter 7. You can turn forward with me to verse 8. Talking about their teaching here. And this is directed at the religious elitists, the scribes, the Pharisees. Mark 7 verse 8 says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. The things that they thought of as their authority were really nothing to God. It was not the authority of God. But now Jesus comes into the synagogue and he is not quoting the famous rabbis of his day. He is speaking 
the pure truth of God to them. Absolute truth, the clear, practical truth that, if applied, changes one's life. Heart-changing words, words of God. He wasn't offering helpful hints for happy living. We have good evidence that Jesus, I think, would support expository teaching um, because that is God's Word to us as a New Testament church today, as, a new, as on this side of the cross. Jesus would proclaim the sovereign authority of God, and He would call people to obey His authoritative Word. And it says that the hearers were amazed or struck out of their senses because they had never heard the scribes teach this way. Luke 4, 22, not necessarily describing the same event, but it says here, And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Like, how could a man who is born of a carpenter speak this way? And this is what struck amazement in them because he was not just the carpenter's son. He was the son of the living God. And the reaction of the people to Jesus speaking here was his reference to Isaiah 61, uh, 1 through 2. There in Luke, as they respond to his ability to teach on this subject, you know, saying that he is the I am, the Messiah, these things that he would teach in the synagogues, and they were just blown away by it. His words possessed authority. Though, or through Jesus, God is establishing his supremacy over the highest man-made authorities. The scribes were the ones that they held almost in reverence because of their studiousness and having you know, gone through all the teaching, having been qualified. It's almost like they were the seminary graduates and they held them in high regard and trusted the words that they said. That was a man-made authority. They, in a sense, in their flesh had lifted them up and put them on this platform of authority and they would heed their words. But now Jesus is here and he's speaking with God-ordained authority. And God, through him, is establishing his supremacy over all of these man-made authorities. And he does it here with the teaching of his word. And then he establishes it in the supernatural realm. And we'll look at that in just a moment. In the temporal sense, we have the scribes who possessed a so-called authority among the people. They were the elite. They were prestigious. They were not fishermen. They had the popular quotes from the greatest rabbis of their time. They spoke from the traditions of their fathers, is what Jesus would say of them. But Jesus' authority, in contrast to this, comes from the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God's words through God the Son. His was a superior authority that was found in Himself. And Mark doesn't really provide the words that Jesus spoke. He doesn't go into detail about the things that Jesus says, only that they possessed authority. So he is presenting Jesus to us as, a te- as more than just a teacher, but rather that he brought, as a teacher, an authoritative word which spoke to his deity. In verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man 
with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So we've just come from seeing Jesus establishing his authority over the man-made authority in the physical realm, in the temporal sense. And now we're going to span that and we're delving into the supernatural realm. And Jesus is now demonstrating to us that he has authority over all of us. In, I think it's Revelation, the first chapter, can't remember what verse, John declares that he is the Almighty, the beginning and the end, the Almighty, that means that he is over everything. Everything that has happened from eternity past, through Old and New Testament, into the present today, and into the future, He is the Almighty over all of these things, whether things that are revealed and tangible to us here on this earth, or things that are in a supernatural realm, which is what we're reading about today. He's establishing His supremacy over all of it. And really, this is kind of a study on lordship theology, confronted with who do you say Lord is? Who do you say is Lord? The one who possesses authority over both the temporal and the supernatural. No man could say that. None of the scribes could claim that. They might claim it, but could they demonstrate it in the way that Jesus was going to demonstrate it to us here? In Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul writes, for by him, this is Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, right? The temporal realm, the the tangible, visible and invisible, the supernatural, right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Only God can establish authority perfectly over both. And that is what Jesus is doing for us here. Jesus doesn't just perform a miracle for the sake of performing a miracle so that they will be amazed and then walk away here. Every one of his miracles were performed for a reason. Draws the people to the message and the power of his word. There is a teaching moment here that must be considered for us. There was in the synagogue this man... He had an unclean spirit. This is pretty much agreed upon unanimously that this unclean spirit, he is demon-possessed. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. One of the questions that comes to my mind, or one of the, the things that I consider here, is he's in a place of worship. He's in a Jewish synagogue. And so it kind of begs the question, and it requires a little bit of reading in between the lines, so understand, this is just my thoughts on it, but how long has he been here in this synagogue, attending worship services, listening to the scribes? How long has this man been here? And I like to think that maybe he had been in the synagogue for a while, but up to this point, there was nothing confrontational, there was nothing authoritative that was coming from the scribes that was really pricking the conscience, that was really speaking into the heart and revealing who he really was. But when Jesus spoke, this demon was confronted. This demon knew who was confronting him. 
Because to Jesus, these spirits are not invisible. He sees into the temporal and the supernatural realm. These things are apparent to him. And so when he speaks, his words invoke panic in the supernatural realm. And the demon suddenly blows his cover. Uh, he may have been concealing himself. He probably was a, he could have been a wolf in the synagogue, right? That was devouring up, up the sheep. He could have been one of those, maybe a, a false teacher. We don't really know. Again, this is just me kind of reading in between the lines. But when Jesus spoke, the demon cries out in panic. It is almost like a shrieking when you look at the Greek word for his crying out here. What was it that terrified the demon? It was the truth, the truth of God. The truth invokes panic to the enemy. Their cover was being exposed. Their false doctrines were likely being exposed at Jesus speaking the authoritative word to them. And I would imagine the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees had lulled these people into a a stupor. Like while they taught without any authority, something crept in unnoticed. Right, that's what Jude tells us I think in chapter or verses three and four, that there were there were the deceivers, the people that would come in and the false teachers that had crept in unnoticed because they weren't hearing the truth of God when they came together for worship. They were too focused on the topics of the day and people hearing how smart that they were. They would not know their Messiah if he came and he even planted himself in their midst. But the veil here is being quickly torn, bringing the supernatural here into the scene for just a moment. The enemy is good at deception. How could they go on with so much error in the doctrine? Because Satan is good at what he, what he does. You look at John eight forty four, and, and we'll be there in a moment so you don't have to turn to it, but there is where Jesus, referring to the enemy, says that he's a liar and he's a murderer, and guess what? He's been doing that from the beginning, that his deception and his skill at deceiving has been going on for a long time, and this is what he is doing and continues to do, and if he can catch us in his deceptive schemes, he can destroy our eternal souls, and this is why... We must stand in truth. This is why we must speak from the truth of God. And this is also why we warn when people are not using the authoritative word of God for their teaching of others is there's a lot of caution. There's a lot of warning that we have because the enemy can use others to deceive. MacArthur says here, truth is deadly to the demonic operation, deadly. James alludes to the demonic reaction to God, writing, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The truth, in a sense, breaks through the enemy's fortresses. It breaks through their concealments of worldly ideologies. Likely these scribes were speaking to things that were going on maybe in the world, but maybe they were speaking about Roman rule and how oppressed they were and, and how maybe they needed to, to strike out against that, maybe trying to rile the people up politically or just speaking and trying to victimize their emotions, which is what we still see going on in our churches today. But the truth destroys enemies' fortresses and it, extro- it destroys their ideological lies. In 2 Corinthians, 
10. Go ahead and turn there with me, 2 Corinthians 10, but hold your place in Mark. Beginning in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy our and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's Paul's writing to us here, the, the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. And if they're not of the flesh, well, what are they? Well, they're divine power to destroy strongholds. And if you go to Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about the full armor of God that we must stand in, the only offensive weapon that we have available to us is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. His authoritative completely truthful word. These demons from the spiritual realm are shuddering because they know Jesus, they know His authority, they know His word. And in another sense, His presence there for them is invoking panic because one of the things they know about themselves is that they know their end. In Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That had to be something that caused them to panic. And one of the reasons why they cried out, you're already here. We know what this means for us. And it's almost as if they're trying to avoid the inevitable here. They say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Maybe let's continue this conversation for as long as we can possibly cause it to, to linger on so that we're not cast out. We know what's about to happen to us, uh, but Jesus, we see he'll, he'll shut their mouths here in a little bit. But one of the things that they say is they say, or one of the things that this unclean spirit, this demon says is, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So there's plurality here because it's referring to and using the pronoun us, but Yet it's an unclean spirit in the singular sense. So is this a demon that is in, um, in the form of multiple demons, like the demon legion in the one that Jesus casts all the demons into the pigs? But I think what is referred to here, this is a demon-possessed man, one demon, but the demon is speaking on behalf of all the demons that are out there doing the enemy's work. Right? They, why have you come to destroy us? Referring to himself and associated demons because they all know their fate. Originally, and this is commentary I'm reading to you, originally the angels were created to worship and serve God, but when they fell, they were already in a sense being destroyed because they had lost the purpose for which they were originally created. They ask him, have you come to destroy us? Because they knew that he was capable of destroying them. They knew his status. They knew his power. They knew what he would ultimately do. In Matthew 8, 29, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
They, they knew there was a time that was coming for them. It was not to be right now, it was not to be cast into the hell fires, which they knew were their ultimate end, but it was to be cast out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I think it's sad irony here that the demons acknowledge correctly who Jesus is in this Jewish place of worship in the synagogue. They knew, but those around them, they did not know. In the midst of the congregation of his Jewish brethren, they did not understand. They were amazed at his teaching, but they still were not ready to call him Messiah, and they certainly weren't going to call him Lord. In John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, John writes of them, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Most of them did not have the spiritual eyes to see that Jesus was their long-expected Messiah. That He was the Holy One of God. And the demons knew this of of Him, and the, the demons declared this of Him. This word holy is hagios, and that means to be separate from. In the, the case of God, it's to be totally separated from sin. There is no sin in Him. There's no sin in the perfect one. This is Jesus How this must confront, though, the unholiness of the unclean spirit. Jesus' holiness being present there through his being and through his words, that the holiness of God exposes the unholiness of man. The unholiness that was found in this demon in a very real sense, in a, a possessive sense. But in verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus had no fear of this demon. This demon was struck with fear at the presence of God. The Greek word for be silent. I think this, this is interesting. It's the word thimao, but it means to muzzle something like in a literal sense. You might buy a muzzle to put on, on a dog to keep them from biting people or to, to keep them from barking so that they will be silent. So it means to tie or shut up, to put a muzzle on something, to stop the mouth in order to make it speechless. The demons knew who Jesus was, who Jesus was, but Jesus did not want them to be the ones to disclose it. So he shuts their mouth with his words. It's almost like Jesus didn't want these demons, to be his publicity agents in any way. That was John the Baptist heralding the coming of the king. That was God and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is not the message that was to be spoken from the mouths of demons. Already they were looking to accuse Jesus of performing miracles by the power of the enemy. And Jesus shut their mouths because he didn't want this coming from them. If you look at Luke chapter 11... Verses 15 through 20. Luke 11, verse 15. The 
beginning in verse 15 of Luke 11, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So whenever these demons tried to affirm who Jesus was, he shut them up. He doesn't want them to be the ones to reveal his true identity in a sense. The demon had to immediately obey the one who had the authority over him. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude verse 9 says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Jesus doesn't use any magical incantations here or invoke the name of someone else. He does it of his own authority. So if even the archangel Michael would use the name of the Lord to rebuke the enemy. Jesus doesn't invoke the name of anyone else, but he is doing it as his own authority. That means he is Lord. He is the one, and the demon had to obey. And the unclean spirit, verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. The demon did not want to leave, but he had no choice. The demon did not argue or debate Jesus but simply obeyed. Just to insert a, a short little story here, um, we were at the Contend Conference last weekend, and uh, the conference was really a study on the book of, of Jude, contending for the faith, um, because some have crept in and warning about false teachers, and one of the things that's going around today is a thing called the deliverance ministry. And these men that claim, and women that claim to be demon slayers, that they have this so-called power and authority to cast these demons out of people. And one of the videos that he showed in the middle of his teaching um, was this man who claims to have the authority and the power to cast out these demons. And there was this woman that was brought up. You could see that it was probably a staged show. But the woman comes up, pretends to have a demon in here. Maybe she really did. I, I do believe people can be inhabited with demons. Not a believer, but you know, non-believers can, but he begins conversing with this demon, and this demon begins conversing with him, and it's almost like he's treating it very casually, like this is something that, you know, I don't have to work very hard at dealing with. I don't have to, you know, bring this before God, but rather I have this authority, and he begins to speak to this demon, almost like having a conversation about the weather, and then he goes on to cast this demon out, and this woman shrieking, and if it's a real thing, they're sincerely deceived, and this man has no authority over this so-called demon, and we need to be aware that there are people out there attempting by their own authority to cast out demons, and they are playing with fire, and they are deceiving many people, and the enemy is using them and working through them, whether they are sincerely deceived or whether they are just charlatans and they know exactly what they're doing, it's all the same. Don't even listen to what they have to say. There are strong warnings about this, but anyway, that's just a small story that I want to insert here. Look at verse 27 now of Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> it 
And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So we see this prompting and stimulating a prolonged discussion among them, and it looks as if maybe a veil has been lifted for some of them. Maybe they really truly are looking and seeking after the truth. They wanted to make sense of all of this that they had seen and that they had heard. Now, we don't know what it was all this conversation entailed, but we know they had questions. As it says, you know, what is this? And then they do recognize that it is a different kind of teaching. A teaching that had authority, authority to the degree that an unclean spirit would recognize it and would be cast out by it. They had witnessed a miracle here. They said of his teaching, a new teaching with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. This word for new and describing new teaching is a translation of the Greek word kainos. And it's an adjective which refers to that which is a new kind. You could see it translated as an unprecedented kind of teaching, an uncommon or unheard of teaching. The teaching they had formerly been subjected to were the scribes and maybe their topical teachings using the rabbis and stories about the rabbis and their um, traditions of their fathers, those kinds of things. It was not a teaching that changed anything. Like I said earlier, it seems as if they had been lulled into a spiritual stupor. I think it would be like me coming at you today being a scribe, and if I were like to maybe cite the latest rabbis or commentators, like maybe stringing together a lot of Spurgeon quotes, you know, that's using the authority of Spurgeon, if you will. I know he is a great teacher, but even he would say that we need to trust the Word of God. So I have a Spurgeon quote. <laughs> so it's that, it's Spurgeon. But he says here, it was the authority of his preaching which first astonished them, and then the authority with which he wrought his miracle and subdued the world of the demons. Blessed be God, Christ has not abdicated his authority. He is still the great messenger of God, full of divine authority to save men and to deliver them from the power of Satan. Verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Another translation of the word for fame could be the news. The news had spread. And even in ancient times, I think we'd be surprised at how fast news could spread just by word of mouth. They didn't need the internet. They didn't need social media. But rather just seeing and hearing what was done and having witnessed the miraculous, man, I think this just probably spread like fire. Jesus had his earthly ministry for three years. And already when he entered into Jerusalem... In the last couple of weeks that he had, as he entered in, they declared him as the Messiah, that everybody knew who he, he was. Those that had witnessed his teaching and the miracles had never seen anything like this before. And if you go down to verse 39 of chapter 1 here, it says, He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons wherever he went. He was preaching, he was teaching authoritatively, he was teaching the truth, his very words, and he was performing miracles. 
and it was for the purpose of his teaching. He put on a power display that was shocking. But there was tragedy that awaited many of those who were just interested in the miracles of Jesus. See, that's kind of our nature is that we like to be awestruck. Some of us are probably going to go home and we're going to watch the Super Bowl, and we want to be amazed at Patrick Mahomes passing six, throwing six touchdown passes. I'm not trying to prophesy here, but you know, we like we like to be amazed. We like to be awestruck. But um, that is emotion, and we know that this amazement led to many people initially following Jesus. It seemed like they may have been following him for the right reasons. When we are amazed in churches today, like this guy who supposedly had cast out this demon, man, that just really hits us in the emotions, and we like to be amazed, and so let's follow them. But then those emotions, they're going to be tested to see if they're real or not, to see if they are grounded in faith. Amazed is an emotional reaction, and the problem with amazement is that like most emotions, it begins to fade, and then we're no longer amazed And then we're looking for the next latest and greatest thing to amaze us. And I think that is what we will see happen to many of the people that were initially moved emotionally here by amazement. They were talking about it. They were questioning things. And perhaps many of them truly were seeking after God and wanting to know Him and understand Him as their Messiah. But many of them will leave Jesus when His teaching starts to get hard. When the sin starts to get confronted, when the sin gets exposed, when he speaks of him going to the cross and that he must die for our sins. So if amazement is not connected to a heart change, then that's all it is. It's just an emotional response. In John 8, 42 through 44, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I'm just going to stop right here for a moment to preface this, that Jesus' Jesus' words here, he is speaking to those who claim to be his disciples and claim to follow him and to know him, and these, these words are being spoken to those who would claim that they knew him, and they had been following him around all this time because of the amazement factor. They wanted continually to be amazed, feed into that emotional side of them. Then he continues, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are the father, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the tragedy here is nothing followed the amazement. And they were headed to the same hell as this terrified demon was. And that's something that should hit us pretty hard. The demons knew who Jesus was, and they couldn't be saved. The people didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and they wouldn't be saved. This speaks of the necessity of a combination of two things here. That not just an amazement side of things, that we're amazed at beholding this absolute miracle of God, but it should strike fear into our hearts. Reverent fear 
for his authority and his lordship. That fear is the beginning of our understanding. That's what the Proverbs says. And so I think this speaks of a necessity that we are confronted with both, that you need not just be amazed, but you also must be terrified. Terrified of the wrath of God that is directed towards sinful man and amazed at the Savior and His power to save. But terrified when confronted with your sin and the judgment that awaits those who will perish into eternity without having received Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher, not just a prophet who once lived. You know, even the teachings of Islam would would claim that. He performed some pretty amazing stuff that is recorded in the Bible for us. But he is Jesus Christ, the risen and victorious Lord over all. He is king, and we can either turn to him now and declare him as Lord or follow the demons into eternity and apart from his love forever. Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, some people take this verse and they try to apply some easy believism um, to this passage and that just because they said a, a prayer and gave it some lip service, the, the ABC prayer that, you know, now they're sealed and they're, they're good to go. But a true heart change, Paul says belief in the heart as well, true heart change is accompanied by a repentant heart. If it's a changed heart, if we are dead now in our trespasses and sins and made alive to God, there should be some marked change in the way one is now living their life in Christ. There's a turning away from sin that we were once enslaved to and a turning to God who is able to save and trusting Him as your risen Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank You for all that You come, came to do and all that You did and that your work is complete, that it is perfected in the one who has put their faith and their trust in you as more than just a good rabbi, as more than just a miracle worker, but as the one and only Son of God who came to take the punishment that we deserved, to take it to the cross, to shed his perfect blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And help us, Lord, in faith, Turn to you and turn away from our sins, which leave us dead, which leave us in the same condition as this man who was possessed by a demon, that we are headed to the same destination without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you for your gospel truths to us. Thank you for the truths that we heard in the teaching the children through the truth that we sing in our songs, through the truth from your word and our teaching just now, and the truth that would continue in us and perish because of you, Lord. And the word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces into the division of our soul and our spirit, helps us to discern and discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And if we have not come to you in just a fearful awe of where we stand apart from you, God, 
and help us to arrive there so that we may be able to confess our sin before you and have you restore us into a right relationship with the Father, relationship of peace with God. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's all stand.